lot of us have been sharing about climbing trees, and I guess I'm no exception. Um, the house that I was brought home to when I was born was um, a little place in Richmond, Virginia that had a little dogwood tree out front. Um, and I don't know how familiar New Yorkers are with dogwoods. They're not as prominent here, although there are some around, but they tend to be the kind of tree that is perfect for a little kid. The branches are low to the ground. There's a lot of them. If I tried to climb one now as an adult, it wouldn't go well for the tree or me, but as a little one, it was perfect. And I would spend hours sitting, I give my parents a lot of credit for letting me do this, sitting in the upper branches of my dogwood in our front yard. Uh, I guess my parents trusted me to not fall, even though I'm sure even from that small height, it would not have gone well for me if I did. And it was my safe place. It was the place where I felt like I could be myself, but also separate from everybody else. I was able to look at the world around me. I was able to sit with my thoughts. I was too young to read in those days because we moved when I was five, but I'm sure I still had picture books that I would look at. And many years later, I am still very much a tree climber. In fact, before I met my partner, when I would go on first dates in Prospect Park, there was a particular tree that when we walked by, I would put down my bag and start to climb as a test of sorts. If the person I was on a date with looked very confused and upset, it would not be a second date. If they climbed up there with me, probably there would be a second date. And if they you know, were okay with it, but not great about it, then the jury was out. I appreciate tree climbing as an adult, but I always, even now, no matter how high in a tree I get, always think of my little dogwood in Virginia, which last I saw was still there, not that big, but very large in my memory. When I was a child, one of my earliest memories of trees was the sugar maple. They were plentiful in southeastern Wisconsin where I grew up, probably perhaps the most common tree in the leafy community where we lived. Maples are known both for their vibrant fall colors and for their distinctive seeds, which when they fall from a branch or if you throw them up in the air, they spiral down like a helicopter. Many of these seeds would land and take root in our yard and around the house. But I felt a special connection to those maple shoots that had planted themselves right next to our house's exterior walls. Too close, I knew even then, for the little trees to have much of a future. A tree could not be left to grow within a few feet of a house, I was told. The roots would destroy the foundation and they would get no shade, no sun. These little maple trees, so fresh and new with life, were doomed before they barely had a chance to grow. It seemed tragic to me. I think I identified with them as one young thing to another. I did not wish to abandon them or wait for the inevitable culling that would happen once they were big enough to attract the attention of adult eyes. So I began a project of relocation. When I found a sapling growing in a hopeless place, I would seek another location in our yard, far away from the house, where I thought it might have a chance to survive. Now our yard was not a big one. 
We lived in a community with city blocks and had no room for a maple orchard. But the shoots were small and I found room in the backyard. It was a yard that was rarely tended, occasionally mowed, never sprayed, and left to go wild, especially around its edges. I found places far enough, far enough away from other trees that my saplings would not have to compete, I hoped, for sun or soil. I can't remember if I ever did anything like follow-up care, watering, or weeding. Perhaps that is why of all my replantings, only one, I think, ultimately survived. I had placed it in an untended spot by our next door's neighbor's fence. There were no big trees nearby, no brambly bush to squeeze the life out of it. And so it grew. My memory is that it was a very handsome tree, well-proportioned even at only a foot tall. When it survived its first Wisconsin winter, I was amazed. It was barely more than a stick coming out of the ground, fragile and vulnerable. It, I would have expected it to have perished in the cold, been trampled in the snow, or gnawed at by some hungry creature. Yet when spring came, it was still there, sticking out of the ground upright and sure. Buds reappeared and soon leaves sprouted again. By the time I left that house and went to college, the tree had grown roughly as tall as me. I remember hearing that our neighbor complained about it because it had grown over the fence and was creating shade on their side. Ten years later, my parents sold that house and the yard where the tree lived. Walking by in the years that followed, I saw the property change. On one walk by, I noticed that the old red oak was gone, having survived for decades at the side of the house, despite surviving the harsh red clay of that part of the property. A year or two later, gone was a towering blue spruce, which had shielded the porch and let us children hide from the world under its branches. Later, the front was re-landscaped, and gone was the service berry, who each June attracted and fed birds with its dark fruit. I do not know if my sugar maple still lives there, or whether it was culled one day many years ago. I would hope it has been spared the fate of those trees that are visible on the street, but I expect that it too has passed away. I could not save my oak or my spruce or my service berry and probably not even my little sugar maple. But each lives on in my memory. They were trees that were loved. They were characters of my childhood. They were loyal companions to a boy who at times needed friends who would not go anywhere. They were primordial representatives of the wild universe that I knew even as a child the suburbia around me had little regard for. To pass away is what living things do, but it does not mean the passing should be unnoticed, unmarked, or ungrieved, whether they are person or a tree. I am grateful for these trees, each one and others for their presence in my life. 
I am grateful to be able to remember them, to cherish their time on this earth, to have our respective lives intertwine for the time that they did. Many of us here, I know, as our conversations have shown, have had trees that we love too, who cared for us in their own way as well. May each tree, counted or uncounted, seen or seen, be known for its worth, be known to matter, and may all their memories and lives be blessed. Amen. Hi, and welcome to Getting the Message, where we dive in a little bit deeper to the themes of the service that we had today. My name is Amber Kelly, and I'm the Director of Religious Education, and I'm so glad to be here with our Senior Minister, Reverend Schuyler. Good to be with you. Great to be with you, Amber, and, and all of you watching and listening. It was a special service today. We uh, had a joint service with, I believe it's West End Synagogue. That's right. That's right. Our neighbors are a rest, uh, Reconstructionist synagogue here. There are two on the Upper West Side. And um, they're a special congregation to us because they use our space for uh, the High Holidays, which are the most sacred time in the Jewish calendar. Um, so during their most sacred time, they use our sacred space. And it's a special relationship that has gone on for decades. In fact, no one I've spoken to knows how long it's been going on. So uh, you might say timeless. Yeah, I know. I think it's been one of the really cool things uh, getting to work here these past three years is getting to see all these cool collaborative relationships that Forth has from just all these odds and ends sort of places you just never expect. You know, like not every not every congregation can say that a synagogue comes and uses their space for High Holy Days. Like that's a special relationship. It is. It is. Um, you know, I I think that we've done a lot of good work too to make it a lot not just a transactional relationship. And I think part of that came out of our history. You know, um, my first year here, um, as many people know, the congregation was vandalized with swastikas. Um, and uh, there was it was a big community event in some ways because it was right after Trump was elected and there was this really sharp rise in anti-Semitism around the city. And it was striking to me, particularly as someone who was new, but I think for our congregation too, that West End Synagogue really took it as an attack on them as well, that this was their sacred space. Uh, that had been attacked uh, and not just ours. And so they showed up in real big number and real um, uh, real sort of righteous anger as well. Um, and so it spoke to us, I think about that. It wasn't just like, oh, we're renting out our space, but that this space is a sacred space that's held by, by people that we're not even in conversation with a whole lot or, or congregations or communities of hundreds of people that, that see our space as, as deeply important to them, uh, even though we're not, on a regular basis in conversation. So services like this are really exciting because we get to work with their clergy, their rabbi, their cantor, invite their congregation to join us for a service that celebrates uh, a Jewish holiday uh, that is um, important, although not as, not as traditionally um, high holidays as, uh, as the uh, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur is. So today it's about trees. Tuba Shavat, that's right. That's right, the Jewish New Year's of the trees. I rely on you for because I have not practiced as well as you. <laughs> well, I, I do not come from Jewish background, and so I am not an expert in, in Jewish theology or, or holidays, but I, I um, that is part of why we are so lucky to have West End Synagogue come in, because um, for those holidays that we're not comfortable leading ourselves, we're able to, to work with people right. who are. Right, spotlighting, spotlighting other people. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I, you know, I love the theme. I... In fact, despite loving living in big cities, I'm, I really like nature. 
<laughs> I, I'm a sucker for a good tree. Yeah. Now, do you have favorite trees? You live in Bayonne, New Jersey, which is uh, a little ways away from here, but uh, it's still pretty urban. Practically paradise. No. <laughs> <laughs> As, that's what everyone thinks of when they think of New Jersey. <laughs> it is the garden state. So there, you know, there are probably some beautiful plants. Yes, there's some green there. Um, the one, something that I really like about Bayonne and part of the reason that we, we settled there was that they do have like a lot of parks and a lot of green space for the kids to hang out in. It's still very urban, like New York City, but like it's got a couple really big parks and that are close by to us. Um, there is in particular a park that's right down the street from us and it is on the Newark Bay. And so across the way, you can see the planes coming down at the Newark airport. You have the entirety of the Newark Elizabeth port, which is the busiest port on the entire Eastern seaboard. Mm. And like, so you, you have industry, city, but then you have like this little green space and like, there, to me, there's something really special about that. And I talked about it a little bit in my time for all ages that um, I love wild nature, but I also really love um, seeing like nature in urban, nature in industry, kind of like juxtaposing against each other. Where does that love, that sort of love that interplay between those two things come from for you? You know, I'm not... I'm not 100% sure, but uh, one of the stories that I did share in today's Time for All Ages was uh, about, uh, so I grew up in the military, and my family was a military family, and so uh, growing up on a military base, it's a bit more of a controlled space, um, and yet we still had this beautiful tree out in our front yard uh, that as a five-year-old, I loved to climb up. It did eventually get cut down. I not include that part in the story. Um, we wanted to have a positive message for our young people, not... <laughs> Not, hey, you'll fall in love with a tree and then it'll get cut down. Um, that's a different- Not like mine, which just ends in that exact way. See, we didn't want too many of like the downer tree messages. All <laughs> things pat, dust to dust. But you know, it's seeing that tree, it grew so much and thrived so much that it was a threat to like their uniformity that they couldn't have. And um, you know, like if, Literally right here, we can see out the window to our side, we can see Central Park. And Central Park is obviously very like uh, manicured, controlled, set to be a specific way, designed to be a specific way. But at the same time, like it's thrived in its wildness too. You know, the wild squirrels now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, I'm always surprised by how much, um, how much Central Park cultivates unknown uh, and how much how much they find, but there's, they find, well, years ago, they found a duck that was just there. There was a, there's a, they see animals that they don't expect. I mean, sometimes there are deer there and you know, deer have to come through cities to get to there. Um, and all those animals, they arrive through there. I think there's something for me that's really dynamic about the interplay between uh, city and nature. Um, and I think it gives us a model of, of integration so that we don't, we don't see them as diametrically opposed or somehow inherently in conflict because I think that kind of thinking is what leads to that environmental destruction that right. we so often see where, oh, we can't have, we can't have industry without uh, destroying right. the nature around us. And so I think New York metro area, including Bayonne and New Jersey, right. right? There's a model there of how do we have a beautiful city where human beings live and do everything that we have to do while also preserving green spaces like, like Central Park, but even, the smaller parks that are scattered around the city, right? That aren't things that tourists around the world visit, but are still really, really important. Even those like small, I love the little small parks like that are like little triangle parks in between like intersections that like someone 
cares for, right? Like someone's job is to care for that little triangle park uh, that has like a sign that's dedicated to somebody. Um, and that's a little sacred space in the middle of the city. And, and this is very important, right? Yeah. But I mean, the thing about Central Park is it still amazes me because I was talking with my own kids over dinner and uh, they mentioned like wanting to go to the zoo sometime soon. And like, they were like, what zoos do we even have near us? And they're like, you know, there's one in Central Park. And then like, Central Park is so huge that like you could spend days just, uh, we have family visiting later this, this year. And like, you could spend days just wandering around Central Park and probably still not see the entire thing. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very large. And there's all these nuances in the way that it is constructed is that it's designed to be uh, a, a wandering, right? Not in like a, it's designed to not let you just sort of check off boxes right. in the way that the streets, the roads, the paths are, are designed, the way that the hills are you know, put there so that there's always something you don't know behind the next right. hill. It's very special. Right. In fact, um, as, as the young people say, I was today years old when I realized, <laughs> um, because at the very end, at the corner with, with Columbus Circle, um, there's always been that there's the bike space kind of set up there, but I thought I'd walk a lot from Port Authority up to the church on Sundays. Um, and it's kind of a little time to see this interplay of, of nature and city. Um, and I did not realize that behind all of those bikes was an entire actual entrance into the Columbus Circle subway station. Mm -hmm. I've walked past that probably 40 to 50 times and I never knew that there was a subway station there. Yeah. Like, I mean, I knew that the subway station was there. I just didn't know the entrance was over there as well as like the other four sides. Uh, so little things that Central Park will always surprise you. They're always uh -huh. surprised. There's always new things. And, and it's always changing too, which is cool. Like they're always, they're always uh, working on new projects, restoring things. Up by me, I'm off 100 Street and they are, uh, they're taking out this old ice skating rink pool and they're putting a, a brand new one and they're integrating it much better into the surrounding woods, north woods. And it's going to be really beautiful because before you just sort of left this beautiful little stream path with this beautiful arch with these stones that are held together literally just by gravity, no no mortar or, or cement. And then you just basically like went to like a trash area and not great, uh, but it'll be really beautifully integrated. So there's always, always things that you can discover. Uh, I mean, it's really no shocker to me that so many religions have tree imagery in them like you know not just even the earth-centered ones like obviously like you know pagan traditions you, you do have lots of trees uh, in the practice in the imagery but even christianity judaism islam um buddha was under a tree like trees pretty much work into like every religion's imagery yeah why do you think that is because they're cool <laughs> that's my deep theological reflection um no, I, you know, I think it's this, that same sense of wonder that, that I felt as a five-year-old sitting up there in a tree and like looking around at the world. I think that people see them and like, even though we're just now scientifically coming to like understand how they communicate and how they interact with each other and how they form ecosystems, like we're just coming to understand that. And like, I think that there was part of us that kind of knew that as part of the natural ecosystem that we understood that they were... Uh, a vital part of our ecosystems. Yeah, I think that's true. They're, there's something special about them. They're they're both timeless, but also transitory. They carry some kind of deeper, deeper connection to the earth. I mean, even the roots, right, are sort of inherently unknowable. Who knows how deep a root goes or where it travels to? 
Uh, so they have this whole sort of buried un inner life that I think is speaks to maybe our relationship with our own subconscious and uh, the unknowability of the universe. There's trees, we can see them, and they're also often so ancient. Um, and they're myths, and they really define us when when they're, they they leave. Uh, that's what's interesting is, you know, we in our service, we all reflected on trees that made a difference to us. And, and that's something that, uh, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if that is something that everything we'd be able to find a thing like that, that we all have some relationship to. Reverend Skyler, it was great to sit down and talk about trees with you. Thank you, Ember. Uh, appreciate it. It's a good time. And thank you all for being part of this. Mm -hmm.